What is up, Asymmetry? I have a heavy one for you today. I, I really don't know how to feel after this conversation uh, except optimism. Except optimism. And, and the reason for it is as we continue to ask the question, how do we do this more sustainably? How do we cultivate plants? How do we grow food for the world? How do we pursue bonsai in a manner that allows us to do it with the smallest footprint possible and produce the best results, which in our profession, in our craft, in our endeavor, in our art form is a healthier tree with less and less chemical input? How do we do that? And the exploration of biology with Ian Hunter was one of the components. It was one of the components, and it has become a big discussion that has blossomed out of that singular question. And tonight, we're going to talk about the second component. And we're going to talk about it with a brilliant individual named, named James Agent, who through his company, Eden Solutions, is creating the capacity to deliver plant nutrition and balance nutrition and mineral uh, content not only in the containerized environment, but on the grander scale of agronomy, the scope of which is feeding the world. James breaks it down and talks about his craft on a level that is truly phenomenal, truly phenomenal on a savant degree of knowledge that would be equivalent to savant levels of intuition and understanding. And to have this opportunity to speak with him was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Get ready. Buckle up. It's a big one, and James takes you deep. But if you want to go there, mineral nutrition, balancing the environment and its contributions to the future of our longevity as a species on this earth, uh, James breaks it down for us. Really nice and understandable. Enjoy. Hello, James. Hey, James. This is Ryan Neal. Hey, Ryan, how are you? I am doing fantastic. I'm actually, I'm actually preparing to do an application to the garden. And I always, get, oh, okay. I always get jitters before I apply these things to these trees because I have had, obviously we've already talked about it, I've had some unpredictable experiences, but David came up and took a look at the garden uh, on Monday, and he thinks he's he thinks he's cracked the code. He thinks he he thinks he's kind of figured it out from the testing and the numbers and everything else. And uh, so, fingers crossed, he's right. Well, uh, I don't know about fingers crossed, but I I can tell you the test is accurate. You know, and just by what we've seen, and uh, it it's never let us down yet. Uh, we've let it down, but it's never let us down. <laughs> so I, I think all you got to do is, is from the first time we ever talked, Ryan, is the excess is killing the yield. Right. And if you move those out of the way, it just, it's like skiing downhill and, you know, beautiful weather. Yeah. Can, can I, can I tell you what, uh, what David came to? Uh, sure. Go ahead. Um, so you know, there's been a discussion of uh, there's salts, uh, there's aluminum, um, there's uh, an, an ammonium concentration, but uh, uh -huh. there was another number that I think was standing out to him, and that was the amount of manganese. In manganese, the, oh yeah. Yeah, in the system, yeah. and and I am having this like stunted 
stunted yeah, growth response. And uh, when he tested the, the Akadama, he said Akadama is really high in manganese. And he's, mm-hmm. he's been treating a, uh, a blackberry producing operation at the base of Mount yeah. Hood. And that, their soils there are high in manganese. And he, he was seeing similar responses. And so after he kind of went through the ins and outs of, of all of the numbers from the successive tests, he, he kind of came to the conclusion that he felt like manganese was the deal breaker that was causing issue. Now, the salt's still an issue. The aluminum is still an issue. But he felt like manganese was leading to a potassium deficiency and that what we were seeing in the stunting was manganese toxicity. What we were seeing in the necrotic tip was potassium mm-hmm. deficiency. We are destroyed. Yes, and, and that's... That's right, because it's on that side of it. It's on the cation side of the test. Mm. Uh, even though they'll cross over to the anion side of the test, but no, it's a good. You get. You don't want again. It's the excess is killing the yields. Your manganese was running like one fifty five or one fifty eight or whatever. It's high in your micros. If you would have had manganese at at twelve or eight, which have probably been normal, and you had your you had your copper at 158, it'd be doing the same thing. Mm. It'd, be causing you, it'd be causing you a problem. So that's really, you know, the way it works. But it will push the, the potassium out. You're exactly right. And if you want to push the manganese down and your iron was low, you could jam the iron and it would push the manganese down. But throw the potassium to it and it'll push it down too. So he recommends... He recommended only only pushing the potassium to it through a foliar application. He gave me the drench is uh, is super. Right. Co- he's um, he was recommending that I don't put apply the potassium to the soil only to the foliar. Now the reason the reason for that is because you ding your calcium if you put it in the fo- in the in the soil, and. Um, so you you just yeah if your tips are showing like that we always just. We very rarely ever put out potassium. I'm talking about in crops because there's usually so much built up in the soil. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like tree crops in California, uh, you know, almonds, uh, avocados, peaches, all that stuff. They're, they're, we work with them two or three years in it, and we, we may have put out like five ounces on a foliar right you know, right before the last picking or something, trying to size up because the calcium was good. The only reason I'm saying that is because the excess is so high in the soil. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think this is like a perfect moment because uh, I didn't know how you and I would get into the discussion of these proportions and these relationships but um, mm-hmm. but you 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 just kind of naturally went there, and and I want to come back to that. But I I I need to understand, James, what do you do? What is what is your job? Are you an agronomist? Like, how would you describe you, your your profession? Like, what do you? Because David and and we'll kind of break this down for people that are listening. But David has created this revolutionary testing mechanism to be able to tell you what's inside of the plant tissue. And David himself obviously is very accredited and incredibly uh, knowledgeable. But when I talk to David about you, he says, listen, James is, is, uh, is, you know, in a sphere all by himself. 
in terms of the knowledge of these things. And so what do you do? What's your, what, what's your job? Well, I don't know. I like to say I'm the head grunt around here, but, uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's been a learning curve, right? And it's just, uh, the whole thing has been a learning curve. This all started 14 years ago, you know? And I, and I said, I said, Lord, nothing we're doing is working. Everything is just going to tubes. We got to know how to grow clean food for our families. And that's how this company was established. So what we did is we, you know, what I did is we just drilled down on, you know, reading thousands and thousands of documents. And what we were looking for is we weren't looking for the regurgitated stuff. We were looking for the one sentence or the one paragraph to put, it was a piece to the puzzle. And then one day, you know, David called up about seven years ago and uh, he said, hey, somebody told me about you guys and you got this product, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he had a problem with mealybugs. It was they were getting ready to disc under a, 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 a tomato crop. And I said, David, take these three products and try it. And he did. And it it fixed everything. And. So that's when, you know, it was just kind of relationship from there. And then David started with the, you know, the meter testing in the field and this and that, and it progressed to where Apical is today. But I, I'll say this though, Ryan, we couldn't do what we do without that test because we would be like everybody else. We would be guessing. Mm -hmm. And the CEC exchange based saturation test does not work. There's a hundred different versions of it or flavors is what we call it from all the universities that come out. And it, what the problem is, it's only looking at the anionics uh, of the cationic side of the calcium. And it'll usually always tell you, you got too much. So what we got too do much, here, got too much calcium or got too much of, of, of... You, got, you got too much calcium though. That CEC exchange test 90, 90% plus will always tell you, you have sufficient or too much calcium. And then you go to an apical test and we say, no, you don't have too much calcium. You just basically have no calcium. Mm. Because there's a relationship here of what's happening between, you know, we call phosphate king and calcium queen, and they never go without each other. They'll never move without each other. They got to have each other. You can have all the calcium in the world with no phos and it'll sit there. And the basic principles that we work off of is uh, enemy number one to calcium is salt, and enemy number one to phosphate is aluminum, and nobody's talking about aluminum, you know, out here. But going back to what we do, we just we've we've got a a, a base formula that we've that we've you know come up with. And it's used in all the formulations. And what we do is we raise the immune system in the plant. And it raises it very high, and the immune system in the plant will fight the bugs and the disease off. Because, again, uh, enemy number one to the whole system, the why agriculture is in, the, is it in, nobody's coming on the farm and saying, Ryan, you got too much of this and too much of that. Mm-hmm. They're all saying, Ryan, buy this and throw it out. Mm-hmm. And what happens to people like Ryan is they get into a tailspin, they build up the excesses. These manufacturers out here, if you got a product, you know, like everybody, there's a lot of products with calcium and boron in it. And they'll tell you that boron's an activator for calcium. The answer is true. But 
when you just build a product that's calcium and boron and you run into a field that's high, you know, high boron, and all you're doing is feeding the beast a boron, which is going to turn around and suppress the calcium. Wow. Wow. That's why we look, we look, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Please keep going. I didn't even mean to interject. Yeah, it's, it's, that's why that test will tell us that what's, what, we don't know what Apical is totally doing, but they're, they're just totally on a different level. That test is so highly accurate at times, or not at all, it basically all the times, it's scary. And the reason I say that is, is because after thousands and thousands and, th- you know, tens of thousands of these tests in the database, we just, we're not running algorithms on them. We're just see the correlations from test to test every single day. But what Apical's doing is running algorithms in the background. And I'm just, they're, they're on the cutting edge of just, just putting this whole thing to bed, mm. problematic conditions. Because what the test is actually telling you is, is it, <laughs> it can actually tell you from the data entered is what type of aphids you have in your crop. Do you have striped aphids, red aphids, white aphids? Because they're all there for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a high resistance, the world calls it pH, but we call it resistance. It's, it's an electrical resistance is what it is. So the, so the higher that you go on a pH scale, if your sap is an 8.0, what it means is, is that the the, it's like you trying to walk to the barn with a 100-mile-an-hour tailwind. The nutrients are moving so fast that the plant can't even really, they're not available to the plant. And on the other end of the spectrum, they're moving too slow. And the nutrients, they, they don't have available. This is why the sweet spot is what we believe is 6364. But it'll change. You get into blues, crops like blues or blacks. Uh, blueberries or blackberries and that, you know, it, it, it's around, uh, 3.4, wow. 4.0 to 4.5 because they're blueberries are just naturally acidic and where the world makes the problem with blues is they drive the soil down too much. They, they're driving the soil down the resistance or the pH on the soil. And all it does is bring disease into the plant. But I want to answer your questions. What what's what's next on your mind, Ryan? That you well, I'm trying to, you know, I've been trying to make sense of this. So I I, I was I was pointed in David's direction, and 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 just so everybody understands, uh, Apical Ag Solutions is based out of Camby, Oregon. Uh, it was started by a gentleman. I don't even know. I don't even believe I know David's last name. Do you know David's last name? Canals. Canals. David. David. David Canals. David Canals. Uh, yeah, David's very humble. He won't. He won't say. He doesn't say a lot. And you know, he'll hem and haw. And and, it, and the reason I say that is a little bit about David was when David was, I say, a kid. You know, in his twenties, David was growing twenty-acre produce for all the high-end restaurants in the Northwest, and he was turning out quality like people never seen. And then one day the University of Washington heard about him and they, they came with all the vanfuls of what I call the cubicle kings. And uh, they came to see what this kid was doing, what everybody was saying. And here he is barefoot in the field. And 
he says, they, you know, he said, I'm doing this, this, and this. And they said, you can't do it. And he said, well, I'm doing it. I'm growing bug free. You know, I'm growing disease free. I don't use pesticides or this or that. And they just kept telling him it wouldn't work. But anyway, then they said, come teach. He said, I don't have no credentials. And this kid has been through, I don't know, he loves to teach. So he's been through three or four different learning institutions where he's, he teaches agronomy to the people who are, you know, have ears to hear and eyes to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's basically a little story about it, but it's the, the, what's amazing about the test is it's a water soluble test. Well, there's other water soluble tests out there, but it's the extraction method. That's part of the key of what they're doing and they're using, they don't use acids on the backside. So what they're telling you is what's available to your plant. And you've, you've seen this firsthand, Ryan, when you, on your soil, when you did the Cornell method versus their, their method. Yeah. So you, you, you see what an acid will do. So what, what the world is getting, what the CEC exchange test is, they're getting, they're getting more elements in the field than they actually have available. Yeah. Because this is what, this is what the acids are doing. So it leads you astray. Right. Right, and the the way it was explained to me in terms of apical ag solutions, so the test that you continue to refer to is is called a SAP test, essentially. And David's come Mm -hmm. up with a water extraction methodology that does not skew or create artificial uh, perceptions of what nutrition is immediately available in the plant material. And this is a, a test where you actually take the foliar mass from a tree and uh, subject it to this test, and you know exactly what's in the leaf mass. And when I first went to Apical, I was talking with Evan, uh, one of one of David's uh, right hand people, and Evan was saying, "Listen, David grew up uh, farming without necessarily the accreditation, which you've kind of touched on. So then he went and he got the collegiate education." to back the experience. And apparently David saw that there was still a gap because you can know the book knowledge, you can know the applicable knowledge, but soil, water, and then what in the soil and the water is making it into the plant. Apparently that was the chasm that had not been crossed in an accurate fashion to date. And he found the solution and solved that problem. And that is the test that you are speaking to that you find to be so pivotal for what you do. Is, am I understanding that correctly? It it is, and 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 I and I'll 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 hint on one other thing. There's there is there is other water soluble sap testing out there, but what what they're do what they're what they're doing wrong is this: they'll have you collect the sample and they'll take the older leaves and the new leaves. The new leaf is not the new flush that comes out at the tip. It's it's like your third leaf back. It's it's your first new fully developed new leaf. It may not be colored right, but you don't take the the brand new baby flush. You know, it's it's just a that's what we call the new leaf, and the old leaf is the oldest leaf is usually towards the bottom inside of the plant, because if you look at a you know tomato plants will grow top up, they'll go you know straight up, but if you look at a tree, the tree will go out from all the limbs, so your old leaves would be in towards the trunk. Now, what you're looking for is this. You want the same amount of calcium in the old leaf as the new leaf. And this is the problem. When you combine old leaf and new leaf and you do whatever these companies do and they give you a reading, they're they're only giving you about 25% of the story. 
Because when you see that calcium low in the tips, low in the new growth, and it's high in the old growth, right? Let's just call it 2,500 ppm, and you got 350 in the new growth. The plant is stalled. It's not growing. And the grower will say, yes, it's not growing. So what happens is then you immediately, you go to your salts. You look at your Na sodium. You look at your chlorides. Look at your mag. Look at your potassium. Those are all salts. When those are high in the tips, excessive, what it does, it puts a cork in the middle of the plant or the branch or whatever you want to do, and the calcium will not be able to move out because the salts are there. So what we do is we come in and we throw carbon to the plant in a, in a certain sequence. And when you throw the carbon to it, the carbon will go after the salts, and then you foliar on the calcium and you can drive it up past the salts. But you got to remember, salts are the most mobile in the plant, so they're coming, they're pouring out of the soil. We see Na sodium and chlorides are two different elements. You can find them in seawater, but in your soil or your sap, you really don't need chlorides in the plant. It's the Na sodium that actually does the magnetism, is part of the magnetism with the carbon, but it moves the electrical charge. So your, your, uh, you take like pure water. If you take pure all water, it won't conduct electricity. It's just basically benign. But if you put a smidge of the right salt with it, and usually any salt will work, some work better than others, and then it'll conduct electricity. So I, I like to describe it as like a soccer field. You know, you, you fill that full of one inch of water, and you stand on the other end of the field barefooted, and I drop a charge or a cord in there, it's going to hit you in a millisecond if it can conduct across that field. So your EC, electrical conductivity, is driven by elements. When you see that EC high, we call it hot. And you can go right to the bottom down there, and you can usually look at your NO3 nitrates, your salts, or your aluminum, and you can see what's driving the EC, which we call hot. So what Apical is doing differently is they're looking at the plant from the new growth to the old growth. And when you see these variances, when you see your calcium low and high, you just always, you can immediately go, you know it's high salts in the tips. But if you see high manganese, like you're, you've witnessed, and you may see low, just say you got low uh, iron there, because right, the way they got those elements listed is how they pair up together. And that's what I said. They'll pair up anionically, and they'll also pair up uh, cationically. They'll also spike from one side to the other, and there's a correlation. And this is where these, these algorithms that they run are actually you know, driving this. So the difference between the tips and the old growth, when you get those things balanced and you get that plant balanced and get the excesses down, that plant will drive like no other plants you've seen. And you know we and we say this humbly, but we've David won't tell you this, but Apical and, and and using our solutions in that we've we've broken a lot of state record yields, national yield records, and things like that. Um, and you can grow pest free. You can grow. We we don't have a fungicide, a pesticide, or herbicide in our lineup. It doesn't exist. What we do have is immune. We we set the immune system up. And that's how we do it. We do it individually. So I wanted to touch base on like some of these people that 
manufacturers that'll make a, you know, like a zinc, copper, manganese, or something, like a tri-blend or something. It's a very dangerous element. It, it, it could be the best element in the world as far as availability, but it's very dangerous for the reason is, is one of them in excess or two of them or three of them or none of them? If none of them are in excess, it's a fantastic product. But if you feed that beast in the field and that beast is called the excess, like we have a product called GRM, micronutrients, it's got all the micronutrients lined together. It's a great product to use. But we tell the growers, don't get it near the field if you've got an excess of micronutrients out there because it will feed the beast. So this is the problem with agriculture is we're, not, we're going around in circles. But the main thing in ag is we've broken the carbon cycle. There's no carbon in the soil. That, you know, that was proven from 1874. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, 1864 with the Homestead Act out west where you went and farmed the prairies, you know, and you got 166 acres free. And then 70 years later, it's like 154 million acres went up in smoke. Why did it go up in smoke called the Great Dust Bowl? Well, they blamed it on a drought. Well, I got to believe for the last 3,000 years or so, there was quite a few droughts out there. But what happened is the iron plow breaks the magnetism in the soil and it farms the carbon out, the carbon leaves. Because you used to see out there in these soils where the carbon was at the top. This Carbon is nothing more than what people call organic matter, but it's biologically active. There's a difference between something that's biologically active and not. So the carbon was at the top, and the magnesium was right below the carbon by V electrical charge. The carbon is the magnetism. And what happened was when the carbon went out, the mag just diffused all the way through the soil. That's what you see on this test. It, it's, uh, after thousands of tests, you'll see the mag almost identical from top to bottom in the soil. I don't care how deep you take the samples. And what happened is the carbon is that, that mag is given the calcium a fit. And uh, and this is where the you know the worms were you know the worms create a lot of people don't understand a worm creates you know it's like sixty percent uh, it's a it's a higher percentage than fifty percent depending on the type of the worm and the things like that but it creates calcium but the key that the calcium that it creates out the back end it's a negative charge calcium that's why it's so powerful and when that. all the worms were farmed out of the soil. Now you got a problem with the biologicals. Carbon's gone, and now you just got a you got a thing a soil that'll just blow away. So tilling tilling the soil destroys the soil. I mean, as they talk about it, I guess in college we learned it destroyed structure. But you're saying tilling the soil basically let the carbon go. Well, it was the iron. It's the iron plow that did it. Huh. It's the actual iron. If you ever see a moldboard plow. And you um, you see a moldboard plow, and let's just say it's 12 o'clock and it's sunshine out, and you've plowed that field, you can walk and look at the side of the soil on the moldboard plow, where the soil is, where the rick, the plow went by, and it's got a sheen to it. It'll glisten in the sun. That's a that's a that's an iron deposit on the soil. It's not as much as the plowing; it's the iron deposit. You know, and, and this goes all the way back to. To a, this goes all the way back to a gentleman called Victor Schauberger, uh, an Austrian self-taught man. 
uh, and the king of Brussels had him come over in the early 1900s, and his question was just this. He said, Victor, uh, we need you to figure out why our farm yields are dropping. So Victor came. And if you read about Victor Schauberger, it's, it's an amazing thing what he did, but we don't have time for that. But regardless, he came out here and he saw the Armenians, you know, plowing with the wooden plow. Wherever the wooden plow was used, the yields weren't falling. They were increasing. But wherever the new iron plow was used over the last X number of years, all the yields were dropping. Mm. I found in research, I found a, a post back in the late 1700s of the U.S. where the American farmers were leery of the iron plow that was coming over from Europe. So it's been around for a while. Because the, they they said in this post it was like a you know a newspaper post, and it they said that uh, that the iron plow will what it'll do is it'll bring weeds to the soil and it'll break your yields. Now, did they know it was the iron doing it? I don't think so. So what Victor made was a bronze plow, which is um, which is copper. At, at that time that he was doing, it was co uh, copper and, uh, oh, Lord, I can't think of the other one. Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. But but that right there raised, the, it ra what it does is it raised the electrical charge of the soil, which will bring the, you know, the biologicals back. But it's not as much as, it's not the farming in Kansas, you know, or the farming in Iowa. It's, it's, it's the way we farm. It, you know, there's a reason, a lot of people don't know this, but the Gulf of Mexico, you know, you got to go like 86 miles from New Orleans out there until you can find anything alive. That's like 200, you know, that's, that's a lot of square miles. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I know, I used to know what it was, but I can't, it doesn't recall to me right now. Um, the other one, copper and tin, copper and tin makes bronze. That's what he made his plow out of. But. You know, it's not the farming in Iowa. What it is, it's it's all the phosphate and it's the um, nitrogen that has an affinity for water. It'll attach to water like a magnet. It hitches a ride in the creeks and the rain, and it goes to the Mississippi, and it goes to the Gulf. That's what's killed all of the life out there. Hmm. It's And who stays behind is Mr. Potassium. Right, right. Right. Wow. So, so when you continue to talk about uh, what what you do, the name of your company, Eden Solutions. Am I understanding that correctly? Correct. It's it's Eden Solutions is the company, and and the 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 brand name is Blue Gold. Blue Gold is the name it's, of the products that you that you are are producing, and that. And when I talked with David uh, through Apical, he said that a large majority of the problems that they have, they solve uh, with, with blue gold and, and, the, and the, that, that product line because you have figured out a way to create available forms of the necessary ionic content and you've also figured out ways to make that small enough that it can cross the stomatal uh, boundary and barrier and enter the plant's root system. And and am I understanding that correctly? It, it it it's a good statement and it's a good start. But basically, what we're doing is you got to remember everything is electrical. 
there's an electrical charge to the cell. The cell is nothing more than a generator. That's what the that's what a cell is, and it runs off a fuel called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. Um, so, but the electrical charge is is really what it's about. So what we're doing, a lot of times when you make a solution, or when I learned this years ago, is you transfer it from one tank to the other and you go down to pick up a transfer hose or like this and, and an arc will jump off the hose and just give you a little static electricity just like you see you know when you're in the bed in the blanket and at night you can see the static electricity light up under the blanket so there's an electrical charge to the element and that's what it's about it's about electrical charge it's, it's basically alive or living the charge capacity so when it hits the plant it it pulls it in through the leaf right in and it's not the stomata it just you can watch the blue gold you can you can the best time to foliar the blue gold on a plant is early in the morning when the dew is out because it loves water and it'll pull that what you see is when you look across a crop you'll see a gray haze on the crop a dull finish and and that what that is is if you take your bug lens, you know, 10x, 20x bug lens or whatever, good magnifying glass, and you go out and you study that dew, that dew is nothing more. You'll see, you know, just bazillions of little beach balls, little perfectly round balls that of, of what it is. It's carbonic acid. It's moisture. That's what dew is. That's what rain is, carbonic acid. That's why when you, you can irrigate a crop for 15 months, I don't care, or 15 times, and you get one slow drizzle rain and that crop will pop. It's the carbonic acid. That's what's happening. So when you look at these little beach balls, these little beach balls are nothing more than different sized little beach balls that are held by a very slight negative charge to the leaf but it gives it a gray sheen. When you spray it with the blue gold today in the morning and you go out there tomorrow morning and look across the crop, you'll see it looks like you sprayed it with lacquer. You will not see any more beach balls on the leaves. What you'll see is just a clear coating. So what you're seeing is the actual moisture coming out of the air via electrical charge drawn to the plant and the plant is drinking through the leaf because of the blue gold, the charge capacity. And we learned this very early on. We learned this in the citrus groves in Florida. So what it does, it's all about the electrical charge capacity. And that, that's really what it's about. Because remember, all life is electrical. Every cell, everything that you see out there that's living runs off an electrical charge capacity. That That's why they hit you when you have a, you know, uh, your heart stops. That's why they hit you with a big electrical charge. They're inducing the heart or the body. They're putting a charge capacity from the tip of your toes to the your tips of your hair, and they're putting a charge capacity back through to jumpstart the heart. So it works via electrical charge, and that's the way. That's what's so powerful about the elements. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. How did you get here? How did you How did you get to this level of knowledge? trial and error and by the grace of God that's all I can say that's basically what it is Ryan it's it's uh in the beginning you know we in the beginning with this we and I'll give you an example uh 
we and there's misnomers out there that that, are, that we're being taught, but we accept these because somebody somewhere in this land of Oz or wherever it is says that you know this is what happens with a weed or whatever. You know, weeds are nothing more than indicators of what's wrong with your soil. That's all it is. So, like a few of them, you take like a, a Johnson grass, uh, broom sage, morning glory, thistle. Um, there's a few more lamb's quarters, um, dandelions. Those are all basically calcium deficient weeds. They're, they're, what, what it means is the weed is actually producing, if you look at it on a spectrograph and you look at any type of, we call them herbs, they're just herbs, they're not weeds, they're actually your friend. And you tell the farmer that the weed is his friend, he pulls his hair out and he says, son, I'm spending 60% of my budget trying to kill him. I said, that's your problem. I said, you don't understand what they're trying to tell you, not that we do. But if you look at it on a spectrograph, it, it'll, it'll blip on a chart. It'll say manganese, and it, you'll get this on the bottom of the chart, a little spike. And, you know, copper, cobalt, you know, zinc, whatever you want to do, it'll get the calcium, and it'll spike off the chart. Just spike. Goes right to the moon. What it's telling you is that thing produces, there's, there's that much calcium in there. It's basically an available form of calcium. So this is why we, you know, we... we for instance, a blueberry crop in Florida, 80 acres, organic. They're spending $2,500 a week to hand labor, pull the weeds. It's 167, 173-something thousand dollars a year. And weeding, all right, that's a huge, I mean, most people it's, wouldn't do that, but these people did. And we came in and they were, you know, they said, we grow blueberries, but we got a healthy, healthy crop of foxtail. Foxtail is a big old weed got a tail on it like a fox that's what they call it and within eight months i visited the farm and we couldn't we literally could not find one foxtail on the whole farm not one foxtail and we and they were plagued by johnson grass johnson grass in the south quack grass in the north and we found a couple patches of quack grass so now did we scour the whole thing inch for inch but no but when you look across the blueberry fort you know 20 acre block you can see a foxtail all the way at the other side it sticks out. And all we did was we balanced the calcium and the phosphate and the foxtail went to sleep. Hmm. You know, we, there's a weed out there plague in agriculture called pigweed. You know, it's, it's, uh, and corn and soy and it grows, you know, way over the top. It's got huge leaves, a million seeds per pod. And, and they're actually, I mean, I've read some things, you know, what, if we know it's true or not or whatever, but they're coming out like with another a DDT type of chemical because they can't get rid of this thing. There's nothing that'll kill it. And we've gone in soybean fields and I, I don't, won't get into the whole story, but we've gone in soybean fields and balanced the field and just sprayed a couple times. And those pigweeds went to sleep. They just collapsed. Now we didn't spray a herbicide. We didn't spray any of that. We just see the pigweed is there because of, of high potassium and high nitrogen. That's what it thrives off of. And it's it's thriving off of these conditions because that's what basically MPK that they're growing with. So when you can balance that in the plant, the plant, the weed will just, it'll go to sleep, what we call it. How do we know that? That a, a pigweed has a stalk like your wrist. 
I mean, my it's huge, and it, this thing grows, you know, my God, seven, nine feet tall over top of the corn. And the following year in the field, that pigweed only got 18 inches tall, and the stalk was half the size of a pencil. We didn't do anything. We were balancing the soil. That's all we were doing. Mm. So what the, the weed was doing is was it felt it was doing its job, and it went to sleep. Now, a lot of people will call us crazy, but I've got all the pictures to prove it, you know, and, and that's... That's just something that we we see this all the time. What I'm talking about is so-called weeds. See, the farmer's plagued by, he's not plagued by 500 weeds. He's plagued by five or six or three on the farm or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a farmer in soybean farmer, Missouri, 6,000 acres. And he stopped me in mid-sentence. He said, look, I get morning glory all over this field, but it grows in patches, five acres, two acres, 20 acres. And he said, you know, wherever I disc in that morning glory, I get a bumper crop. I said, you know that morning glory? It's high in calcium. I said, that's why it's there. He said, you're kidding. I said, here's a novel idea. Why don't you just plant the morning glory over the whole thing and disc it in? You know, because what the plants are looking for is when that soil loses its calcium availability, the so-called weed or the herb will come back and it, 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 these weeds will grow, but they're producing calcium in abundance that's that's putting it back in the soil but it takes many many years for them to work it out mm-hmm. and where i was going with that is on our own farm we had a uh, tobacco was grown on this farm for hundreds of years um and we had a field on the back hill that was loaded with russian thistles and they were just seven, eight foot tall, as thick as hair in a dog's back. And they were in a, you, they were in a tobacco field, like a, like a five acre field. And we were always told if you don't bush hog, those fields, will, those weeds will take over your farm or fields, they'll spread. And when I quit farming, I just said that nothing's working. And I just quit. And I said, I said, Lord, you got to show us how to do this. And all we did, Ryan, was when we started with the blue gold, we knew it had to be natural. We knew it had to be, um, it could be herbs, it could be whatever. And we just started throwing stuff in a spray tank. And, and, and for five years, we quit bush hogging. And those Russian thistles never migrated one inch outside of that tobacco field, not one inch. And they stayed in that square. And then when we still started spraying all the fields with whatever, you know, we, we could put into a tank and get it soluble within the, the, the first year when we started spraying, we had about 40% less thistles. And three years later, there was about maybe 5%. You go in that field now and there may be one or two thistles. We never sprayed at a herbicide. We never did anything. All we did was balance the soil. Now what we did, we didn't know at the time because we didn't have the technology to look at it. Mm-hmm. But this is, the, this is the same as your plants. This is the same as your bonsais. Your bonsais are just looking for balance. And, and it's the excesses. It's the manganese. You know, it's the, it's the potassium. Not in potassium in excess. It's the manganese in excess that's working against the potassium that's a deficiency. Mm-hmm. It's the aluminum that's working against the phosphate. And and then you have the calcium being suppressed. You have all these different elements being suppressed. So when you when you find out what that beast is in the field or in the sap, and 
and then you you understand how to balance it and you start to work that out. The problem is this. You know, you break a glass in the kitchen and within five minutes you can sweep and mop it up and you got 99% gone. You cannot do this in the soil. You cannot go sweep or vacuum up in the soil. There's two ways to get an excess out that we know of. Painfully grow it out, okay, or you outdistance it with another element. Mm. So if you see what David just told you, he said, look, we're going to throw the potassium on a foliar and watch the, watch the manganese fall. And that's what you're going to see happen. Because you got to remember too, a foliar can, can, can transduce to the root system because the plant is constantly what it's doing in, in a proper cycle is it's taking carbohydrates, putting it down to the root system that feed the biology. And this is, the, this is the transpiration that's going back and forth in the plant. So sucrose is going down into the root system because that's basically through the photosynthesis cycle, and it's done by the phosphate. This is why phosphate is so important. That's why we call it the king. It's because if you look at ATP, and you know ATP has only been on the radar screen probably since 2011 or seven is when they actually started understanding what it was. And you look at a gentleman named Kerry Reams back in the 60s and 70s. He was pronouncing it back then, but he didn't know what it was. And what his statement was this, no nutrient goes in the plant unless it's in a phosphate form. Interesting. Okay, this is what he said back then. So phosphate, adazine triphosphate is three different forms of phosphate combined in the molecule sequence. And what's, what's happening is, you know, you can live 60 days without food. You can live seven days without water, you know, some, something like that. But I, I've read where the, these people say you can only live 15 seconds, nine seconds without ATP because it's the, it's the fuel that drives the cell. Everything would collapse. Unbelievable. So... So you're in North Carolina right now, correct? Correct. Were you born and raised in North Carolina? No, I was born in Florida. Okay. And did you farm? Were you? Did you grow up farming? Yes, I always we. But uh, yes, I I would I just from the earliest age three or four, um, you know, just had a farming heart, and it was just it was just in me, and um. When we came to North Carolina, we, we didn't farm for a living, but we, we farmed because we loved it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a passion uh, to work the soil and, and the plants and all this. But we just, we never really had an understanding of, of anything because what we were doing, we were, we were just following mainstream agriculture. Mm-hmm. Now, when, and, when you say we, is this your family or is this you? or uh, who? Uh, Yeah, our, our, our family, correct. Uh-huh. How, what, and how old were you when you moved to North Carolina? Uh, 21. Okay. All right. And you moved with your family. And so you, so you were farming. Were you doing something else as a career? Or like uh, how did farming tie into your life if it wasn't a, a, a livelihood? Farming was just a, a love. It was a love there for farming. Just wanted to do it full time but never got into it or anything like that. But by 
my career is I've, I've never been employed by anybody else. I've always been self-employed, but my career at that time was, was uh, commercial construction and development. So this is, you know, if you talk about one spectrum to another spectrum, um, you know, and a lot of people, when they see that, they'll say, how did you make the transition? And I just, it was, it was just a miracle. That's all it was, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, but that's basically the, the transformation that I made, but it was, it was a thirst and a hunger for the truth because I, I just, I just, I, I knew and I realized, I said, this is not working, but we didn't know what was not working. We didn't understand why it was not working. And then at one realization, I just said that the chemicals just are not working. They're killing everything. When, when you when, see the worms come to, go ahead. When did that happen? When did you come to that realization? When did you make the transition from, from commercial construction to what you're doing now? Oh, it was uh, about 20 years ago. Okay. You know, something like that. But, but blue gold didn't come around. It came around about uh, 14 years ago. Is when we actually started, you know, started. But prior to that, it was research and everything else. And you know, when when we heard of a soybean farmer, uh, you know, doing over 100 bushels, 120 bushels, which the national average is like 33, 34, 35. Uh, we, you know, I drove through the night, you know, and and parked in his front yard. And when he came out at four o'clock in the morning to go to work, I begged him to tell us something. Please tell us anything. You know, what are you doing? How are you getting 125 bushels an acre when the world's getting this? You know, so we, these are things that we, we learned. And like I said, we read all patent searches and just old patents, but we were looking for the pieces of the puzzle and it was trial and error, but we knew that the chemicals weren't, weren't getting us there. And, you know, the world will tell you, oh, we're feeding the masses because of this and we're, we're producing more corn and we're doing this. No, they're just plowing more acreage. Uh, you know, I, I call it's like the fox in charge of the hen house. You know, you call up the fox and you say, how are the hens doing? He says, fantastic. We're doing great. And then one day you look at your checkbook and you say something's wrong and you go visit the hen house and there's not a feather left. You know, this is what's, this is what's going on out here. I mean, California, we do a lot in California in the Northwest and, and it's just these, it all starts with the water. The water is the most, and that's another thing. Nobody's coming on the farm talking about the water. And the first thing we talk about to the farmer is the excesses. The second thing we talk about it is water. You know, we had some crops in, in Pennsylvania this year that were just gorgeous tomatoes. And they were just, they were just on their first picking, but they're sucking out of the creek. They're watering out of a creek, right? And we warn against that. And it set in and rained in Pennsylvania for 10 days. And while they started watering the crop and that this crop was 10, 12 feet tall, hanging a lot of fruit. They had one picking and it was just really not a lot of issues in the crop. And they started watering the crop from that Creek. And what they were getting was all the runoff from the farms. Mm-hmm. And that crop collapsed within seven days and they dissed it in. And when we, we sap tested before that, the the chlorides went up to like nine thousand ppm. Oh jeez. The NA the NA sodium hit three hundred. You know the aluminum was like you know six somewhere in there. But but what we're saying is it's the runoff that w- that went in there that, that because the SAP test tells us before it didn't happen. It wasn't there. It didn't exist. And the only difference was they watered from the creek. Mm-hmm. 
and this is how quick it can happen. So, so we, 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 in California, we lost a plum crop this year. And we, when we say we lost the crop and this was in June, they went, they went to, they've inspected the crop all along. The crop was beautiful, you know, and it was hard as a rock four days before they, they went and inspected it four days. They went to pick four days later, that crop was just turned. It just turned soft and you cannot pick the fruit. And we ran the sap test and we did that. And their chlorides were like at 6,000, 7,000. The chlorides had shot up in the last 10 days and it's coming from the water and the NA sodium in this, and it made the crop soft. And I told them, I said, look, you, this has got to stop. If we don't address the water, it's going to eat, it's going to eat the crop up from now on. So they had nectarines, they had peaches, they had all these other crops coming at them. So what we started doing is we started injecting carbon and, and one of our other products called HCF. And we're talking about four ounces per acre and an ounce, of one and a half ounces of HCF. But what we did is we, they water five days a week. And during the summer, they water seven days. I'm talking about they're doing it at night, five days to seven days, continuous. And the next crop, the, the nectarines that came off and the peaches that came off, the improvement was like a thousand percent. What we were doing was we were isolating the salts that are loaded in that water. We were grabbing it with the carbon, rendering it basically, I don't want to say useless, but we were rendering it to a certain degree. And, and the farmer said this, he said, look, when I was a kid, you know, he's 56 years old. He said, when I was a kid, we used to get four to six pickings and we used to pick and then they would become ripe. We'd pick again over the last 25 years. We only get one picking and you got to pick it right now and get it off the crop else it's going to go bad. And he said, these nectarines and all these crops, he said, we had four to five pickings. And he said, the only difference we did was what the injections into the water. So the water is key to what's happening out there. And what we've seen on the apical test, because they do a water test too, and it's so scary accurate. And we've seen a lot of these farms where we do four, five, six water tests a year. It's always worse in the summer. It starts in the spring and it gets better in the winter because of farming. It's the chemicals. The chemicals are leaching into the aquifers. Mm. They're leaching down in the, this is where chlorides and these salts and any sodiums come. And we've had this problem with like bicarbonates in Oregon where they're sucking out of the, 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 the ditch lines from the irrigation, you know, from the Willamette river or whatever it is. And the bicarbonates are in the water are just out of control. Their water resistance or pH is like 9.0. Right. That'll stop phosphate dead in its tracks. Your next question. I, I don't want to ramble on here too long. Oh, man. You, you, you're... You're filling my head with just such good information. I mean, it's an awful lot to try and grab onto. And I think like, uh, you know, I wanted really I wanted to talk to you because the first conversation that you and I had, I mean, I have trepidation about about trying to find uh, solutions to bonsai because uh, Japan has cultivated bonsai by using primarily rapeseed cakes uh, as a as a nitrogen source. Uh, for, I would say, the past 150 years. 
and uh, in modern times, composted chicken manure as a backbone of a lot of their uh, fertilizers in the past, say, 50, 60 years. And Japanese bonsai, you know, is still the reference for quality in the world, the craftsmanship, the age, the provenance, the attention to detail, but, but also the health. Um, but when I apprenticed in Japan, uh, you know, I found that we had to, or at least I was, I was instructed to apply chemicals on a, on, on a weekly basis through the entire growing season. Every seven days, we did a tank mix of uh, insecticide and fungicide. And I just thought, because I had gone to school for horticulture prior to, to going to Japan and apprenticing with, with my master, um, and the big discussion there was this catastrophic downward spiral of the Central Valley of California based on the farming practices. And so my, my ambition has always been with bonsai to get to a point where I don't depend on fungicides and insecticides uh, to be able to cultivate these trees. And I never knew if it was possible. And, you know, through a circuitous series of events, I had a really ill experience being advised by, by a very prominent chemical company in the Willamette Valley uh, to solve a root aphid issue. And I almost killed all of my trees in the garden. And since that time, I, I, I sort of have dedicated to finding a different solution. And we've gone through, you know, an application of a compost extract that I don't think it was bad, but it was too potent. The biology was too much for these trees in these tiny containers. And we've kind of been trying to figure out how to balance the nutrition in the containers ever since. So the first time that, um, you know, I, I got onto apical uh, ag solutions and I took some samples down there and tested and then they told me about you and what you were doing and um, and we had reached out to you and you and I got on a phone conversation and I said uh, you know I'm being it's being recommended that I treat these trees with gypsum because they're deficient in calcium and we're trying to you know for for lack of a better term cleanse the soil to a degree and you said you said Ryan is agriculture getting better or getting worse? And I said, it's getting worse. <laughs> and you said, every ag advisor in the world is going to tell you to apply gypsum, and then you're going to have to go back and dun dump a bunch of, uh, of nitrogen onto the soil, and that's the vicious cycle that's taking it down. And you kind of had me there because that was the backbone of my understanding that we were not doing things that were favorable and we're seeing it getting worse and worse and worse on every single level, bird populations, invertebrate populations. I mean, our pollinators are being completely destroyed, diseases through the roof, borers are wiping out the entire forest, uh, species of mass die-off of flora. I study ancient trees. They're all dying. They're all dying. You know, and it's just like, holy cow, it's a bleak, it's a, it's a bleak outlook. And, uh, and our conversation was the first time that I guess I felt like I had a ray of hope in a long time, that there's a way, that there's a way to, to, to fix these things. And, um, and so you advised me on some applications. I applied carbon to the garden. Um, and then I came back and I applied calcium. And we've been testing this whole time. And I did see things improve, but there was still an impediment. And that's where David came out. And I think we've found... Uh, a significant breakthrough, at least uh, as far as bonsai is concerned, about the the construct of akadama and its and its uh, akadama, one of the particles we utilize, and its behavior and some of its weak points and how those weak points are magnified and how we go about adjusting this system. And that's kind of where we're at now. But but the whole notion 
that we could have a world that doesn't depend on insecticides and fungicides and that not only could we perform as well as a chemically facilitated grow operation, but you could outperform it because you're, you're dumping less money and less labor into applying things that are making the problem worse is, is really something that just feels like too uto- it's almost too utopic to believe. Well, and, and that's uh, a lot of people don't understand because you ask any commercial farmer, you know, would you consider going organic? And most of them will just start laughing. And they said, my God, I'll get crushed, you know, if I try to make that transition. And, and the answer is true. Uh, the statement is true is what he's saying is because most organics are uh, most or most farmers who try to go organic are not successful and it either bankrupts them or they just barely get about and they go back to the commercial because most organics don't work. There's a lot of misconceptions out there in the industry. There's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, uh, you, you take a product like there's a, there's a, you know, humix and fulvix and we talked about this, you know, where, where you, and I told you, I said, Leonardite, you know, if you have a humic, most all manufacturers use a product called Leonardite mm-hmm. out of the Dakotas and it's other places that you can get it out of the Southwest. But what it is, is it's an oxidative source. And we found through the testing and then, and learning it's, it's high in aluminum, very high in aluminum. Why do most, why do most manufacturers use it? Because it's cheap, you know, it's less than a hundred dollars a ton from the mine. I think the last time I looked at it, I, I don't even know when, you know, we pay like 1200 for ours, but we're not after price. We're after results. So that type of product is loaded with aluminum. We build, we've been building a database with Apical of all these products. When we have a grower that comes to us, you know, we say you let's test it, you know, and we usually pay for the testing to build the database to help other growers and to understand what's going on. And you'll see all these excesses out there. But agriculture as a whole is about to go off a cliff. And and I don't know what the you know, whatever they're saying out there. I'm just telling you what we're looking in the testing and on the farms that that as they come to us because these these you know, you take a you take a, a third generational farm in California. They started off with 6,600 acres, and now they only got 500 acres left, and they're barely hanging on to that, and they lost everything else through attrition is what it is. Mm. You know, and it's, this is what's happening on the farms. With, you know, we're, we're stuck at 200 bushels. You know, I mean, they, they, a lot of these people back in the 60s and 70s were doing six, 700 bushels. You look at a lot of the guys in Minnesota, you know, the guys are doing cover cropping and that. I mean, these guys have broke 500. I mean, why is it? Why, why are these guys doing this? So you just got here's to, the, here's the key, Ryan. We've been told that you're just a dumb, stupid farmer. Just shut up. Go to the co-op. Don't ask any questions. And they'll tell you what to do. That's all you need to know, and then you can farm. But the question is, nobody's asking the one word is why. And the and the question why is so pivotal. This phone rings all the time. You know, I got aphids in my crop. Well, what do you got for aphids? Well, ask us the right question, and we'll we'll tell you what to do. 
no, you know, well, I got aphids in my crop. Well, I just say, ask us the right question. And the guy says, finally, he says, why do you keep repeating yourself? I said, if you ask why the aphids are in the crop and you know why the aphids are in the crop, you'll know how to stop them yourself. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that they're there. There's a reason that you got pythium. There's a reason that you got all the pests. You got a reason you got the disease. And it's, and it's, a lot of times it's really quite simple. I, I don't want to, I want to, I want to remain very humble and it's, it's, but the, you know, look at it this way. Let's look at an element called sulfur. Sulfur is an element that nobody would contest. It's, it's put out there in large quantities. Like let's just pick California, the grape industry. They're throwing 20, 30 pounds of, of sulfur out, you know, Every ten days, twice a month, as a fungicide, and they're and they're spraying you know one to two fungicides a week. Wait, what is the okay. sul- what does the sulfur do on grapes? Is it a fungicide? What is it? No, well, what they're doing is they're doing it for so-called disease mitigation. You know, uh-huh. it it'll like if you have powdery mildew on uh, which the reason they're putting it out is because of disease, right? Right. So they throw the sulfur out and when it lays on the powdery mildew or attaches to it, it it'll it'll stop it. But the question is is why is the powdery mildew there? Because the sulfur is just a band aid. But the main thing what the sulfur is doing is driving the pH down. And when you drive the resistance down in the sap, I'm talking about the blood of the plant, you'll have disease come into the crop. The lower you go, the harder it'll attack. The higher the, P, the resistance is in the plant, the higher it goes, the more pest pressures you'll have. You can have both pest and disease. You'll have a low resistance, low pH, and you'll have high Na sodium, mag, and potassium with a hint of chloride or high chloride, and you'll be, you'll be getting demolished by powdery mildew and bugs at the same time. Mm. So they're, they're throwing the sulfur out. What does the sulfur do? It does a few things. One, it drives the resistance to pH way down. So when we just got through saying when you drive it down, what happens? Disease actually comes in. So if you're driving it down, you're going to spray way more fungicides on the crop. Yeah, so you're making, you're making, a, uh, you're making it worse for yourself by, by treating with what is being recommended you treat with. I, I didn't say that, but you saw the picture. The answer is correct. Okay, you get the star. So now, if you just turn around and take a product that drives the resistance back up, guess what goes away? Powdery mildew. It goes away. Yeah. And it's, it, is it as simple as that? Sometimes it is, but there's usually other issues in the crop. Okay, you know, other other excesses. Remember, it's the excesses that are killing the yields. Now, the other thing that sulfur does is it stops nitrogen. It'll stop nitrogen deader than five o'clock. There's two things that stop nitrogen, high mag and high sulfur. Those two things will just render nitrogen. It'll turn it off like a light switch. So what is the most used element in the world? It's nitrogen. They're throwing more nitrogen on the crop than ever before. See, this is another thing that somebody's not, you know, it's the fox running the hen house. Somebody better talk to the accountant, you know, what's going on. Because back in the 50s, you know, back in the 60s, we were spraying 
you know, 20, 30 units of N per acre. Now, all of a sudden, we're up to 200, 300 units of N per acre, yeah. you know, or more. Why is the number keep climbing? Somebody's not asking why. So if you have high magnesium in the soil or whatever, that's one indicator. And if you have high sulfur on the crop, which is another indicator, you know, and what it does is it renders the nitrogen unavailable. So, and you have, when you, and sulfur is, gypsum is probably, gypsum is a beautiful product when you, when, when you, when you need it. But if you don't need it, don't get it near your crop because it's a, it's a product that, it's a gift that'll keep on giving that you will not want. I mean, for three to five years, that sulfur will be pouring up. And when it pours up, you just, you're, it's like trying to roll all of this excess business is like this. You got a hill and it, it can either be two degrees or 16 degrees and you're trying to roll a stone up. So the higher the degree, the harder it is to roll the stone. That's what these excesses do. Mm-hmm. You got to flatten that hill out. And then you want to do is then take the hill downhill and then that's called balance. So it's like if, if the three major elements that we face in farming and most every single crop that we run into, the main problem is aluminum, all right, which stops the phosphate. And when you stop the phosphate, you're going to stop the calcium. The second thing we face are salts, potassium, magnesium, NA, sodium, chlorides, and boron. Boron is very, very seldom, but it's usually a contributor. That stops calcium. No calcium, no phos. No phos, no calcium. And the third one is sulfur. We run into sulfur that it locks the nitrogen cycle out. You lock the nitrogen cycle out and just go, just kiss, just go home because the crop's not going to work. You need at least one percent nitrogen in the in the cycle. You know, you could go as high as one point five, maybe one point six, depending on the crop. So these are just elements. So if you look at what's throwing out in farming these days, we live in a salt world. Okay. Ask any farmer this question. 10-10-10 fertilizer. What is that? And they'll say, well, that's 10% nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And, and then you ask them this question. What's the other side of the 70% that's in that product? And and all of a sudden it's the deer in the headlights and they go, every single farmer will go, I don't know. Right. I said, You never asked that question, you never asked that why. Well, you know, what it is is mostly what it is is there's a little known industry in the United States called the swimming pool industry. And they make a lot of chlorine and things like that, and they got a lot of byproducts. There's a lot of stuff going in the backside of fertilizer. And they don't have to tell you what it is because they're not claiming it on the label. That's a labeling, you know, loophole. You could be throwing DDT on the backside and you don't have to claim it, you know, even though it's so-called illegal. So I'm just, you know, so you got to start reading between the lines. So we live in a salt world and the salt is knocking the legs out from underneath calcium. And if you got no calcium in the crop, you're just going to have no, you know, no, there's so many crops that we come to is the calcium is so low and the potassium is to the moon. And we're, and remember when you, the degree of that slope, 16%, when you're trying to roll that stone uphill, 
that is a crop that you get into where you've got high salts. And what's the de- what is the percentage of crops you get high salts? It's like 99% of them. Right. Very few organic crops will have low salts. They'll have lower salts. But remember, chlorides. Chlorides, you don't really want any chlorides in the soil. None. You don't really need any chlorides in the sap. You need any sodium. It, it, there's a difference between the, the two of them that are actually happening. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a major difference between the two. But one of them is basically synthetically, you know, derived, and the other one is a necessity. Mm-hmm. And what about question? And what about aluminum? Uh, uh, because y- you you have said multiple times, like uh, you know, aluminum is the biggest issue that nobody is talking about. And and honestly, I had not ever spoken about aluminum in, in regards to plants until speaking speaking with you about sort of what what we're trying to figure out and balance in terms of bonsai cultivation. But I was really shocked at the amount of aluminum that I have uh, in the soil. And then we did the the sap test and there wasn't that much in the plant. And then we treated with the two treatments and the amount of aluminum in the plant shot up. And I asked David about that and he said, well, the amount of aluminum, it was already there. He said it was already there. But when, once we started applying the carbon, once we started applying the calcium, once we started applying these things, it, it's going to, the plant has got to process out the toxicity. Uh, it, it can't just, there's no place for it to go. It's got, it's got to use it or it's got to process it out over the course of time. And, and he informed me that I would probably see aluminum spike even more before it starts to come down. And and that's that that is true. It, it's it's probably the, the the most nastiest element that we face, and 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 some characteristics of it. I, I won't. Um, let's look at like production crops. You know, zucchini, peppers, tomatoes, whatever. Anything that flowers and fruit cycles. Um, characteristics of high aluminum, and, and high aluminum is scary, because I mean we. We look for less than a half a ppm in the sap, and we want we want maximum of 0.05 in the soil. Um, now that's not on you know you again you look at a CEC exchange and most tests you won't even see aluminum it's not even in the picture. But every every peer review study that you'll read will tell you that the aluminum is not available. We'll tell you the exact opposite from field conditions testing in the field case studies in the field, you know, hundreds at a time, that that element is is so dangerous at small amounts. And and when you get one or two, three, I've seen three PPM, you know, in the crop cause issues. I've seen 60 PPM where cherries dropped every single fruit, you know, a week before harvest, just put it on the ground. Well, that's that's a hard issue when you're a cherry farmer. And all of a sudden, you lose your whole crop. Well, yeah. what aluminum does is it does a few things. It does, uh, um, it it attacks the reproductive system is the first thing it wants to do. The second thing is it want to attack the it wants to attack the root zone. You'll you'll always have small root zones when you have high aluminum in the soil, and you'll have discolored root zones instead of snow white roots. You'll have 
you know, just a slight caramel or an off caramel color, you know, just a, an off white color. The other thing that'll do on flowering and fruiting crops is it'll, it'll cause flower abortion. It'll drop flowers or the flowers, instead of being brilliant yellow or brilliant white, they'll be off yellow. There'll be a lighter color yellow or a, you know, like what we call a puny color, puny yellow or puny white. Puny white is like a, it'll have a caramel hint to it. It's not just that brilliant white, which that flower should be. The other thing is it'll cause, it'll cause flower drop. It'll cause fruit drop. It'll cause disease issues in the crop. It'll cause pest issues in the crop. And, and it runs the full gamut. It runs, it, it's attacking the root system, the reproductive system, and then the fruit and flower cycles, which is the most dangerous um, of, of all the elements is because there's not another element that we know of that will attack that much in the plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so we caught on to this three or four years ago with Apical and we started watching and watching what was happening. We noticed that we could not get, we started seeing the correlation in the math that we could not drive the phosphate up. The phosphate was like nailed to the floor when we had higher, higher aluminum. So then we started understanding what was happening, uh, the liberation of the plants. It's like a lot of crops in California, you know, the phone rings here and they'll, they'll hear about us. And, and these guys can't get their, their grapes off until they get 23 and a half bricks, so-called, you know, and, and they, they, you know, if they're, and they're usually like in a 19, well, that crop is, is not going to work. It's, it's not going to come off and usually it's going to rot in the field. And so we come in with a phosphate and we can foliar a phosphate on it. You can see the bricks jump up. Now, I want to I want to say this to everybody out there is people have heard of bricks and bricks meters and and which is a refractometer meter, which is looking at a light refraction and it's giving you a reading. But you got to understand one thing. When you have high salts in the field or high salts in the sap, you're going to get a false bricks reading which means that you can go to a commercial farm and it'll have a higher bricks reading than usually a, an organic farm because it has higher salts. The higher salts fool the refractometer and it makes you think you have a higher sugar count than you not. When Apical first started, they used the bricks and they went away from it and they went to total amino acids. When they went to that total amino acid sugar, that's when the game changed. Because sugar is a key to anything because that's photosynthesis. And when you got, you know, you got anywhere from 7 to 20. Well, let me say this. In the apical test, one unit of sugar is equal to like 2.5 to 2.75 bricks. So if you had a 10, Okay, you would it would be showing like a 25 bricks, you know, somewhere in that reading. But you get an apical test and you get that plant to seven to ten and that in that sugar index, that plant is driving hard. Mm-hmm. And there's there's really no problems in the plant. Because sugar is a key. It's it's it has to do with the ATP production. That's what the that's what the phosphate is doing, photosynthesis with the sugars. Right. That's why we that's why it's the king. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I I'm just I, I as you're talking, I'm just, I'm just you know I'm having like uh, 
I'm having like 30, 30 years of my bonsai life flash before my, my eyes, but I'm also thinking about all of the greenhouse management courses and viticulture courses and crop science courses that I took, botany and uh, physiology and uh, disease and pest. You know, I'm just thinking about the soil science, the entomology discussions, like uh, abiotic plant issues. Like <laughs> my, my entire collegiate education is is coming crashing down on me as I'm listening to you. And it, 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 it it's interesting to me talking with you because, you know, my experiment to try and move away from chemicals really started with the compost extract and, and this belief in stimulating the biological system through the addition of, of you know, fungi, bacteria, and, and trying to stimulate the sort of the hierarchy of the trophic levels inside of the bonsai container. I mean, we're essentially growing in an aggregate, uh, virtual aggregate, uh, soil composition because of the reduced height of the gravity column in the shallow container. And, and that changed things up and it changes the amount of biology that can act inside of that container. But the, the, the notion of biology sort of saving things uh, or, or being the key to things bypasses the notion of mineral balancing. And when once we recognized that mineral balancing was going to be a necessity, the plant over the course of time through the root rhizosphere has the ability to manipulate its small little environment in that ecosystem that it's taking things into the plant from. And I'm, and, and I'm assuming over the course of time that you probably could very slowly alter the state of the container uh, or the state of the soil through, through the biology alone. But that mineral balancing allows you to reduce the loss of yield through your toxicities. And that's kind of your perspective with which you approach this from. How, does, how, how do you view biology in, in relation to mineral balancing? Oh, biology is everything. It's, it's, it's the key. It's, there's, there's nothing more prevalent in anywhere in life on the planet, in the soil or in the plant, anything that green that's coming up or going down is, is greater than biological action or the worm action. You know, if we go back to the prairies, you know, you got to think about it for thousands of years, those prairies were producing over a billion animals on those prairies, you know, 60 million Indians, nobody who was rotating the crops out in the prairies. No, if you, 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 I've seen some of these, uh, studies where they took some of these prairies that are still, you know, they never did farm them or anything else. There's just a very few patches left. Some of these root zones are 20 something feet deep, you know, where the roots are going down the carbon, you know, level in the soil, my God is 16 inches. You know, it's way up as far as the organic matter, which is biological active. So here's an interesting story that we, we met uh, some farmers in Missouri, just met them, they I say met them, they called. And uh, these two brothers grow hay, they grow forage. And eight years ago, they basically quit everything. And when I say quit everything, they were just similar to our story. Nothing was working. Everything's falling apart. These guys are doing less than a ton per year, or, or I should say less than two tons per year in total production, three cuttings or something like that. And they just, they quit all the, the chemicals, the pesticides and everything. And all they did was biology, biology. 
And they started brewing their own, making their own, and they bought every biology they could find out there. And they applied that, just started pouring it to the field after every cutting, during every cutting, everything. Every time they could, they poured out biology. And right now, they said they're just breaking eight tons per acre. They never did anything with balancing excesses, you know, or breaking them down or anything like that. They just started throwing what we call the bugs. They threw the bugs in the field, the worms came back, and the field started to drive. Now, it took, we're talking eight years. It's not easy. So going to biological action, it's everything in the soil. It's the symbiotic relationship because without it, you know, there there is basically nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and what always gets me about a lot of this foolishness out there is is let's just take salmonella. Salmonella is like a heart attack or death to a poultry farmer or a poultry production outfit. I mean, you know, recalls and all this stuff and, you know, take it to the landfill and destroy it and all that. But salmonella is basically everywhere. You know, it's just, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's all, it's one of those elements that's everywhere. But the question is, why did it rear its ugly head? Because there was a thing called antibiotics or, or something, a chemical or whatever, that killed off everything else that's keeping it in check. Why is salmonella just rare its head at certain points? Or, and I'm saying, or take pythium, take root, you know, root pythium or whatever. Why does it rear its ugly head? Is because the biology, the other biology that kept it in check is not available at the time. You know, so if there's a fire in the city in the row houses and there's no firemen to come start putting it out, it's just going to travel. So the biology are basically every, you know, and, and people are, you know, there's people out there that says, Oh, it's all about biology. There's people that said it's all about fungi. You know, you got to have this, you got to have that. What we just like to say, it's all about balance. Mm-hmm. When you can get back to these soils that are balanced, if you can go into a set of woods that haven't been logged in two or 300 years, And you go into that soil and you start observing it like we did. That soil can take like a a three, four inch rain in 20 minutes and you'll get zero runoff. Because that soil will absorb. This is the difference. You know, people don't understand that that just 1% for every 1% of carbon you can put back in the soil, you can bank or hold another 20,000 gallons of water per acre that's actually available in the soil. You know, we're talking like 1% organic matter. And and David is, is shown on testing and things like this where they, they've taken organic matter, you know, with stuff we do and everything else, and they've done like 2 3% organic matter in one year, you know, wow. putting back into the soil. That's basically unheard of. And he doesn't, he doesn't even real. they don't even really talk about that. You know, that's something a whole different form, you know, but when when you can go into, you know, a 6,000 acre berry farm out West, that was basically about to go, you know, out, about to go after biz, out of business using all conventional methods and using conventional so-called organic methods. And I won't name the companies that were supplying all the farm things, but these people were just, they were plowed, disking under crops, strawberries and like this, you know, faster than they could plant them. But, you know, now these people are setting 14 tons, you know, in straws per year. Uh, blueberries are pushing, you know, 8 to 10 tons, 12 tons. It's unheard of. 
you know, in normal production. But when things, when the soil starts to balance, when the sap starts to balance, when the plant starts to balance and the whole system starts to balance, the plants and the, the production will drive like you've never seen before. It doesn't matter if it's a bonsai, it's a blueberry, you know, it's, a, it's an almond tree. They all drive the same, but they do require different characteristics. They do some, you know, like water crops. We, we look at, we have a big problem with what the term is, the one word is called rotation, rotational crops. We have a big problem with that. We don't believe in rotational crops. But what we believe in is correct rotational crops. What the world will tell you is grow corn, soy, and put alfalfa in the field afterwards, and that's a rotation. Well, here you got soybeans at like moderate to, to heavy potassium, and here you got corn that loves it. It's a potassium hog with nitrogen. And here you got alfalfa that hates it, does not require it at all. So when you take every alfalfa crop in the United States and ask any farmer that follows that rotation, and when they try to start the alfalfa, it looks like mange on a dog's back, and then it peers out after one, two years when alfalfa is a 100-year perennial crop. It was on the prairies. So why is that? Well, so we take a t- you take a tomato. A-, a tomato is what we call a water crop. A water crop is like a tomato, a watermelon any types of melons. You could throw cukes in there, but not as much. But what's a good sign of a tomato? You bite that tomato and it squirts water all over. The tomatoes you go to the store today, you cut them open, they're like cardboard. They're not like that. What a tomato is doing is, is like potassium. Potassium molecule will attract like six molecules of water attached to it. Magnesium will attract... Uh, you know, one one molecule a mag will attract like nine water molecules. So there's a there's a problem out there in the world of farming, and it's called fruit split. And nobody seems to know what what it is. They have no idea what's causing it. But but the simplicity is really this. Okay, you have two elements that basically most fruiting crops love in the correct balance potassium and magnesium. You have another element called calcium, but calcium is in charge of cell division. Cell division is what? It makes the hull of the tomato or the cherry or the almond or whatever, it makes it it makes it grow. Cell division is it makes it expand. So when you have low calcium and you've got high potassium and magnesium excessive and it rains on the crop or waters on the crop, it grabs the water pulls it into the tomato and the calcium cannot expand the the balloon and the tomato burst. Mm-hmm. And everybody's dumbfounded about why this is happening in the crop. And they, all they know is this is why most greenhouse guys don't water as much. They're scared to water the crop because it splits. And they've known this for years and they're blaming it on water. And when they, people come to us, I said, have you ever heard of this thing called rain? It happens all the time. You know, how do you stop the rain in the crop? Not being facetious, but uh, what's happening, Ryan, is this. It's it's an excess with an imbalance of a deficiency. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's an element, you know. So 
So again, when you drive the calcium up and get the right phosphate, and you kiss that potassium and mag at the right time, then you get tomatoes that look like, you know, big old fat juicy tomatoes that you like. And then you, here's another thing. When you have that imbalance in calcium and you have high calcium on the bottom and low calcium on the top, and you look at the apical test, most all of your micros will mimic it. They'll be high on the bottom, low on the top. And I don't care what you do. When you got low calcium, they're... Calcium is like the mother duck, and the micros are like all the ducklings. And the difference is when you've got that calcium out of balance in new new leaf, old leaf, and it's not the same across the board, and you got low up here because you got high salts, your ducklings will be all over. They're they're just they're running everywhere. They're not behind the mother. But when you get that calcium balanced with the phosphate. All the micros will fall. You can spit on the crop with micros, and and they'll they'll come into line. But before that, when the calcium's not in balance, you can throw the micros at it, and it just won't work. Unbelievable, unbelievable. And I mean, how do you? How did? Obviously, this is this is so much research over time. But like when I watch you and David, uh, and just like I said when we started, I said he. We we have a potassium deficiency uh, in our tip. We actually have a, a a high amount of potassium in the soil, but the potassium is being suppressed by the manganese. So even though it's there, it's just not being used. How how do you formulate sort of your basic parameters of the nutrition that a plant needs to be healthy? Like I I I know uh, the publications by Albrecht about um, sort of soils and nutritional ranges that you want to meet are a reference for some bodies of study, but how do you, how do you base or how do you form those ranges? Well, it's, it's a very good question. And that's, and this is where we get to the bottom of things when we start asking why or how, you know, and this is what we started doing. And, and I want to touch on, because you mentioned Albrecht, I want to touch on him real quick. When we say that CEC exchange base saturation test doesn't work, it's not anything against Albrecht because Albrecht was married to a Russian and she got, Albrecht basically got that CEC exchange test from the Russians. They were doing it long before he was, but he kind of more perfected it. But, but what I believe is it was correct during Albrecht's time, but since then somebody skewed the math. Somebody's changed the decimal point, which has changed the whole thing. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that, but I just wanted to throw that in there. Going back to how we learned of how to balance the crop and what it takes is basically through Apical. Apical took the blue gold, the Eden Solutions, and they sap tested, you know, before, after, before, after. And they did it, you know, putting this on, that on, that. And, and one day David called up and he said, James, he said, those micronutrients, he said, they're basically, when you put out one ounce per acre on a less than a two-foot crop, you are going to get two to three ppm in the sap. It's going to make it jump up. If you have a five-foot crop, you're going to get one to two. If you have a 10-foot crop, you're going to get half to one. Mm-hmm. So, so when we knew that, we knew the ratio of now, when we look at the test, and we need 5 ppm, we know 
the ratio to give to say, you need six ounces per acre, you need seven ounces per acre, you need whatever, you know, but, but the, the problem is this, Ryan, you never want to be chasing the crop because dogs who chase cars always get killed, but we're always chasing the crop. When I say that, we're always chasing, trying to mitigate the damage the excesses are doing. Right. So when, when you're chasing calcium and you're, you are throwing the calcium at the crop after you put in the right types of carbons, because it's, it's timing is pivotable. And in saying that, like when you've got these salts in the tips, you've got to throw the right carbons at the injection. Because here's another thing. When you foliar feed the plant with the blue gold, you induce it electrically to pull up nutrient from the roots. So what you want to do is you want to inject first what you want to go into plant and then foliar it with, you know, the remaining of, of what needs to go on top. And what happens is it's like a one-two punch, boom, boom. You pull it up from the bottom and you foliar it on top. So what we're doing is we're banging carbon from the bottom, certain carbons on the bottom and certain on top at the same time. And then we come back and we jam the calcium on a foliar. Mm-hmm. And, and, but what we're always trying to do is work around the excesses. So remember, the only way that you can get around an excess, painfully grow it out or out distance it with another element. So if salt's is enemy against, number one, against calcium, and and carbon is enemy one number one against salts. You throw the carbon, and it's not just any carbon; it's the right carbons. And then you can come back and hit it with the calciums, and it'll stick. And you'll see that you'll see that resistance climb. Now, the other thing I want to get into is we've been told all our lives about ag lime, and ag lime to us is just it's high cal lime, it's gypsum. It's, it's mag, it's, it's dolomite. It's just under one label, high, you know, ag lime. And, and we call ag lime grandkids lime. And the farmer always says, why do you call it grandkids? Because if your grandkids are still around to take over the farm, it might be available then. Mm. And this is the problem with what they're putting out. Ag limes have very little of it, so-called available calcium per ton. You're talking like one, three, five pounds per ton. It's actually available. How did we learn this? We've taken case studies. They want case studies out there. So you, you take a case study like an 80-year uh, farm, third-generational farm, grandfather, son, grandson, and they got good records, and they put out 60 tons of ag lime per acre over 80 years. And they've got three to 500 ppm of calcium, which is not enough. And they did a, and I looked at one of their soil tests, and I looked at the four soil tests, and I said, Marvin, I said, oh my gosh, look at this. I said, you got a calcium level of 9,330-something ppm. I'll never forget it. And, it, and I, says, I said, you use, a, you use aragonite. He said, how do you know that? I said, it's the only calcium that'll do that because it's negative charge, no other calcium that'll do that. 
And this, I said, how long have you been using it? He said, four years, and I put out a ton per acre. That's four tons per acre versus 60 tons. And this guy's sitting on almost 9,400 ppm of calcium, which is, my gosh, he could probably farm for the next 15 years and not need any more calcium in the soil. But here's a key. His soybeans were sitting in the field, and they weren't moving. And we looked at the soil test, we looked at the sap test, and we said, Marvin, you got no, you got no phosphate zero phosphate so we no irrigation in the crop so we threw the phosphate through the phos 23 out of foliar and he called up i don't know how much longer two three weeks and he says my gosh these beans took off like a rocket the leaves were big as pie pans they're over my head the yields way up and all we did was throw on phosphate and some micros because he had all the calcium in the world, but no phos. Mm-hmm. Remember the king and the queen don't go anywhere without each other. So biological action, to answer your question, Ryan, it's everything. I mean, it's, it's without that, the soil is just going to turn to concrete. There's nothing that we can really do with it. But we do know that the solutions promote the biological action to take off. And how do we do that? Through case studies. Right. It, it, you, t- you take an almond, you take almond blocks in California, which are some of the highest fungicide and pesticide sprayed crops in the world next to tobacco. Tobacco to us is number one. Almonds are number two. They're sprayed with more glyphosate. And you say, what, do, what about your worms? It's a kind of mute point question. Let's say, son, we haven't seen worms in these blocks in 50 years, you know, 30 years, whatever. And we start in the block and they'll we'll tell them to let the lanes grow out in the middle let let the let the so-called weeds come up and we'll we encourage them to plant a cover crop and what you'll see is you'll see three or four worms hiding under the nut grass you know out in the middle of the lane which they've never seen worms worms do not come back to bare soil they got to have a covering so we've learned this years before. We learned it on a pivot in Utah. We, we put out the solutions 10 years ago on a pivot. And the gentleman actually went to the soil water conservation. He, he lives, this, this ranch is on the rim of the Grand Canyon in Utah. And he went to the local soil water conservation and he asked the question, is there worms in the valley? And they laughed at him and said, well, yeah, there's worms in the valley. He said, look, I bought a commercial farm. I've owned it for nine years, and I've never seen one worm on my farm, not one. As much as I look for him, his, the top of his fence posts were rotted out more than the one in the ground. And what it was from is it was from which he, which he claims it was the chemical use was so high on the farm that it, it ate the, fence, the wood fence post away. Right. So we, we come in and we put three product, products through his pivot. We did it two times on his, because he would come and he'd let the heifers graze in the high country and then they would, they'd, they'd, they'd pull them down in the summertime and put them on the pivots. And within 30 days, and we, you can see the pictures on our website if you look for it, he jumped on a shovel and there was like 20 worms on the shovel full. And he said he's never seen so many worms. So where did the worms come from after nine years of his place on the farm of a good case study, never seeing a worm? Well, what, what we learned from this was the, even the chemicals can't stop the worm eggs. The eggs are in the soil. 
And whatever the blue gold did, electrical via conduit, we don't know. It's a miracle. But we see this in field after field after field. Worms will come back to the field after you start applying it Mm. because they're in the soil and the eggs hatch. Your question, please. Crazy. That's crazy. And, and so you hear about these like grasslands where they've where they cut the rainforest down in Brazil and they graze for cattle ranches, and then all of a sudden this this ground is destitute of nutrition, and then people will will drop prune organic matter, and it takes eight to ten years, but then suddenly you know trees can grow, and then when the trees come back, suddenly groundwater appears where there was no water, and there was largely uh, a completely arid environment, and you're talking about the the organic content from leaf debris in the forest, and how much more that ground can absorb of water with that with that carbon content. It, what what gives rise to the actual return of groundwater in these scenarios where you see water come to the surface? Well. It, it, the main thing that I would say is this, is, is we've broken the magnetism of the soil. Mm-hmm. And magnetism is everything because magnetism is energy. That's how the cell works. That's how electricity works. That's how everything works. It's via magnetism and it's via light. Those are whole other stories we could do you know, another time. But anyway, um, the carbon is when we broke the mag in the soil. It's like uh, you will, if you... If you have springs, let's just say you have springs in those rainforests, or you have springs in the mountains of North Carolina, and you and it's and it's heavily wooded, you log those woods. I mean, you clear cut it, or you clear cut the, the the rainforest. The springs will dry up. There's there's a relationship between the trees and the springs and the water that comes up out of the ground with the sunlight. And, and I don't, you know, I don't want to go there right now, but, but we've seen this in, in clear cut operations in North Carolina where they'll come in and clear cut it where the springs are running. And after the trees are gone, it, they dry up. So the, the, the magnetism of the, the magnetism of the earth is everything. Cause you have a, you have this magnetism that gets, you know, it's, it's a different from nighttime to daytime. And that's a whole nother subject another time too, but you'll, you'll see the greatest affinity for water is when you have the highest carbon source. And because you'll have that magnetism in the soil, the higher the organic matter, and organic matter is nothing more than biologically active carbon. That's all it is. It's a carbon source that's, that's, that's loaded with bugs. And that's what we refer to them as bugs. And, and we make some biological products. There's a lot of good you know, biological products out there. And the higher the bug concentration in the soil, when the worms come back, the worms are the key because you can have biologicals in the soil. The problem with the biologicals is they're being, we know that the chemicals are not conducive to them. We know that, that Monsanto at one time, I believe it was 2015, they repatented it as a, an effective microbial killer is so nobody could come back and so-called sue them because they they deadened the soil or whatever but that's just that's 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 past that's long we're, we're we've moved on from there but that's what the chemicals do so the lower the biological action that you'll see you'll see 
a lower affinity to hold water in the soil. And, it, and it's, it's just flat out because the carbon is lower. And we, can, we look at an apical soil test, and I look at the test and I said, look, your soil is, is hard on top. It's very crusting. If, if you don't plow it and it lays flat and it dries out, you get cracks, and your cracks are probably four to six feet long and a half inch wide. And they'll say yes. And you'll say, if you plow your soil, you kick up clods the size of cantaloupes, you know, or tomatoes, you know, or whatever. And they'll say yes. And your soil does not hold water. When it rains, it's slick and slimy on top. And they'll say yes. And and they say yes to this. And they're they're intrigued by, you know, you're looking at something 2,000 miles away from their farm, but you're looking at this test and you're telling them what's wrong. And, and, and they'll say, how do you know that? And you say, by the amount of salts or excesses you have in your soil. You know, we've kind of got this down to, you know, like, you know, and it depends on the soil. It could, it, 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 there's a lot of variables. You know, you can have a, a clay type soil. You can have a sandy soil. You can have these different types of soils. But, but the end of the day, the culprit, number one, is salt. So, so go, to the, go to the biologicals. If... If, if you have biologicals in the soil that, you know, their job is to degrade zinc, you know, because there's, bio, there's a biological for everything. Right. There's, there's, there's trillions of them. They, they don't even, they've only categorized 10,000 of them or 20,000 or 30 or whatever it is, but there's, there's hundreds, there's just, it's infinity. It's like it keeps on going. So all these bugs in the soil got different jobs at, at doing this and doing this, and certain bugs got certain bugs got like salts. So that's what we like to do is when we get high soils, is we like to throw the high bug salt guys to it to start degrading the salts. But once the chemicals come in, go back to salmonella. Salmonella doesn't rear its ugly head, or pythium doesn't rear its ugly head, because it just decided one day there's nothing there to keep it in check. This is what antibiotics do. Antibiotics come in and they wipe everything out. So when you wipe everything out, there's people going to actually will grow and be resistant to it. This is what's happening in the so-called weeds. You, you know, there's, there's hundreds of herbicides on the shelf that don't work no more. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of insecticides and fungicides too. It's, it's... Oh, it's... it's it's low, and before I, I don't want to cut you off, but I don't want to forget this. There's over eighty thousand chemicals in production in the United States alone, and the EPA only knows about thirty thousand. There's over fifty thousand stuff floating around that nobody knows about, and that's not us. This is their own data. It's very easily to research. This is where we found it, and so we're off on the math or something. But it's very, it's it's a great more stuff in production out there than what they know about. So anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, anything you say is going to be far more important than what I'm going to say. Uh, so I think just like coming coming back full full circle and talking about, it sounds to me, because I am trying to understand mineral balancing versus biology and the significance of both. It is a little bit of a question of the chicken and the egg. Sounds to me like biology, if you give it a long enough period of time and you give it uh, uh, even a minimal amount of inputs, biology, I mean, this is sort of like, uh, you know, nature will always win kind of a 
kind of a, a vibe. If, if we destroy ourselves and we make this an uninhabitable world, at some point, it might, may take thousands or millions of years, it'll come back, which I'm not saying is, is like justifies anything, but I am saying nature, nature will win. As far as, as far as using, so you can apply the carbon that would otherwise take a bunch of organic matter to turn into over a prolonged period of time with that lack of biology from that sterilized soil, you can apply that carbon and you can stimulate a more favorable environment for biology to occupy that soil. Is that a true statement? No, it is. It, it's, it's, I would say it's a very accurate statement. Um, in, in what we're, what we do in the farms is just like any farm. It could be your farm or any single farm. It's, it's to the point of, it's just, um, that farm is either you smell smoke, you know, or you got fire or you just got the whole thing's ablaze. And, and all you're trying to do is come out and put the fires out or mitigate the damages. It's not... It's not about building biology. It's not about restoring the soil. It's about putting the fires out, and the fires are the excesses. And it, once you put the fires out and you get the excesses down where they're controllable, now you start on everything else. But the biology are basically resilient to, to a certain degree that I believe. You can take bugs from any type of soil, and you can dry them out drier than, you know, zero, you know, whatever, a very low moisture content. And the, all the bugs do is go to sleep and they're going to wait for the right moisture to come back and then they're going to wake up and then they're going to start doing their job. Mm -hmm. So they are very resilient. I go back to the worms on the farm. Where did the worms come after all these years? And then all of a sudden you just did a couple things and all of a sudden the worms were, you know, very prolific. Well, it's another thing is that, we, you know, the worm eggs that we've learned through case studies uh, are resilient to the chemicals. Now, is that every chemical? We don't know, but we just know everywhere we go, the worms come. So to say that, the biologicals are the same way. They are the key to, to life. They're the key to, to success uh, is getting them down. Because, And we, we tell this to farmers. We said, look, if you would become a worm farmer first and foremost, and you just happen to make a living from produce or eggs or watermelon or, you know, watermelons or citrus or whatever, the worms, you're not going to be dealing with us a lot. You're not going to be talking to us with a whole lot. If you guys would pay attention to the soil, because if the worms come back, that's telling you that the whole life of the soil is going to start coming back. That's the key. And you don't find the worms anywhere, really. And you'll, you'll find the worms hiding in a garden or commercial production under a few plants. But you don't really find them as, as prolific as, as what they should be or could be. We're talking over 100 worms per cubic foot of soil. Wow. That's a lot of worms. That's a lot of worms. Yeah. I mean, you, you go to these woods, like I'm saying, and you'll find these. It's unbelievable what you find. And we've seen this on a lot of farms, you know. 40, 50 worms in a, in a shovel full, you know, when you start counting them. So the, 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 the soil and all this can take a, a great deal of punishment, but the problem is it's, it's wearing out like an old garment. And that's because of the onslaught is so great. Mm -hmm. The onslaught is not coming, but when the onslaught stops and you start feeding it 
what it desires. I'm talking about the biology. And what are the biology like is they thrive off of carbohydrates. And and it's, you know, and there's many forms of carbohydrates, but they'll, this is what usually drives the soil. You know, we, we get in a lot of farm situations and we, they may not have our products and, and we'll say, do you have house sugar? Because house sugar is almost a pure carbon. And, and we'll take the house sugar. And a lot of people don't understand that pests don't have a pancreas. They can't process sugar. That's why they don't like high sugar crops. This is why you can have a you can have a crop out there that's got zero pest in it, and you can you can have neighbors on four sides that are just getting demolished. Absolutely, they're eating the crop to the ground, and they're not touching your crops, and they're all the same crops because the immune system is up on one crop. The sugar content is higher, and and what happens with uh, which we've seen a lot of in case studies is um, where you got bugs on the crop and the immune system jumps up in the crop. And and now you have like, just take alfalfa weevils for for instance. You know, they, they built you a crop to the ground and they eat, they'll eat holes in the leaves, looks like buckshot. And, and then you come in and do a couple things to the crop with nutrition and all of a sudden, the weevils are there, but they're not eating on the crop. But they don't act right. They're, they're acting very slow and sluggish. This is a high sugar rush that goes into it. And what happens when you don't have a pancreas and you can't process sugar, it turns to alcohol in your body. And if the alcohol gets high enough, you, it'll, it'll kill. And if it's low enough, you can get drunk. So when these pests are sluggish on high sugar you see the difference of what's happening. So, I mean, well, I've had, you know, people call up crying, you know, help or whatever, and this, and I said, look, you know, go put five pounds of house sugar on the crop, put some molasses with it. And if you have any, you know, we'll ask them, do you have any silica or something like that? You know, or what do you have in your arsenal? And we'll, we'll say, okay, throw this together and throw it on the crop. And they'll call back and they'll say, gee, it, you know, it, it made a, it made a huge success. Mm. Because there's a huge difference, you know this, Ryan, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but there's a huge difference between throwing a chemical on a crop and setting the immune system back two or three steps than throwing a nutrition on a crop and throwing the immune system two or three steps forward. Right, right, right. It's just a different, uh, I, I, I'm shocked, I'm shocked that mainstream ag has not made this turn. And, and, uh, and I, and I, why, why have they not made this turn? There's one answer to that. It'll answer all your questions. You ask why, and I believe you're going to get the answer. There's no money in health. There's no money in a healthy crop. There's only money in a sick crop. If you're not buying my fungicides and you're not buying my pesticides and you're not buying my herbicides, what am I going to sell you? Yeah. So if you can keep crop sick for whatever reason, there's a lot of money in it. So, so let, let's do it. Do a common denominator here. Let's just think about this for a minute. If sulfur drives the resistance down and a low resistance causes disease to come into plant. 
somebody should surmise, and I spray more fungicides. You know, the warehouse guy or the salesman or somebody may not understand this, but somebody up the ladder understands it, I would think. Yeah. So you're saying that you think there is a degree of intention to it? Well, I I got it. I I, I mean, one, you you just can't believe everybody's ignorant. You just can't believe everybody's that, that, you know, whatever it is, because, I mean, a lot of the things that we do are very so-called what I, what I, a lot of people once a lot of farmers who come to us and after they see and they understand and they start to see the principles, they said, my God, two realizations come to them. This is really not that this, this is simple. There's just a few principles to drive by. And I've been lied to my whole, most of my whole life. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you and, consider and, yourself an agronomist? No. What no, are you? I, what I, are you? I don't. Uh, you know, just just an understanding how all things were, you know, created and how things drive. I I, I don't even know what to put on it, Ryan. I just I, I don't want to be. I've met, um, uh, you know, a lot of agronomists and and uh, is there people out there that knowingly or intentionally doing the wrong things? I, I gotta believe there's people out there, but for the most part, people believe in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when, when you, when you go to this thing called an institution for four to seven years or eight years or whatever, and you walk out with a piece of paper that says you can go do this, you, you actually believe in what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, you got to believe in what you're doing else. You're going to go, you know, you're going to go work at McDonald's. You're going to do something else. Yeah. So, so the, the, the truth about the matter is this, is what we just try to ask people is we said, look, it, if you put all the farmers in the world or all the farmers in the U.S. in a building and you asked them two questions, are your yields getting better? You're going to probably see 99.99% of the hands come up to answer no, they're not getting better. And the other question is, is your checkbook getting better? And, and you're going to almost get a unanimous 100% that are going to say no. So if we're sitting on all this technology, if we're sitting on all the answers, if we're sitting on all this amazing stuff where we're growing all this food, why all the problems? Yeah. Yep. What, 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 something's wrong here. Yep. And, and, and I just think it's a great delusion out there. It's, it's delusional to, 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 to think that you can throw I mean, has anybody ever read <laughs> the warning sides on some, you know, let's just say agriculture elements, let alone stuff you take? Has anyone ever read? You know, oh my God, have you ever listened to the commercial on TV? Right. Uh, you know, it tells you 35 different ways it's going to kill you. I mean, you know, so, you know, so you got to understand, you got to look at what's happening out there. But so, but most of the agronomists that come, they got to come to a realization of one thing. They got to admit most everything that they know or thought they knew is not is incorrect. Mm-hmm. Because really, all you are is you're 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 a manager. Okay, all you do is manage a crop. You're you're not. You shouldn't call them a man. Uh, you know, agronomists. We they should be all called managers because what they're doing is they're just managing the degree of the cat- catastrophe. 
are we going to lose the crop? Are we just going to lose 50% of the crop? Are we going to call out 10% or did the bugs eat up 40%? You know, did the disease cause 18%? There's not many people out there that can say we're growing bug and, you know, and disease free. Mm-hmm. It's not the way the system is built. It's almost like uh, it's almost like it was pushed into acceptance, though. You know, like oh, 50, 60 years ago, they were harvesting, you know, six hundred bushels an acre or whatever the you know, and now it's a hundred, and 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 in another five years or ten years, it'll be fifty, and and it's just like this accepted creep. But I I, I also have to believe that there wasn't anybody sitting there going, "This is awesome." I just have to believe that there wasn't anybody sitting there saying, "Here's how we make it better." And I guess that's where, and David told me about, has told me about some of the projects that, that, that you've worked on and the photographs and the proof of, of, of how you've been able to change the course of citrus orchards or dryland wheat or uh, grapes or almonds or, you know, count, countless blueberries, cranberries, blackberries, countless other things through the executing exactly what you're saying, the, the excesses are killing your yield. And, and what you're, if I'm understanding you correctly, is what you're saying is you can't take the toxicity out, but you can bring the good things up to meet the toxicity where it's out so it's no longer a toxicity. And that is when the plant starts to function at a higher level again. Well, the answer is, if, if we're going to call a toxic, what, what is a toxicity? A toxicity to us is, a, is an excess. You know, you, you can actually drink too much water and drown, but nobody puts a skull and crossbones on it. You know, and, and I want to I state for the record here, too, okay? We're not out here throwing stones at modern ag and saying they're all wrong. We, we quit that years ago. All we're, all we're trying to say is what we're doing is, is, is a total different approach and, and we don't, we don't farm with chemicals and we, you know, don't have most all the so-called problems out there. See, we don't, a, a thing called a disease, we don't really believe in a disease, but what we, what we believe in is excesses and deficiencies mm-hmm. be, be, because we, we've seen, we've seen too much. We do not publish you know, David talked about photographs and things like that, and we don't publish that stuff. We, 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 because it's, it, a lot of times it's too controversial. And again, we're not here to stop anything out there. We're not against all these people there. If they want to farm this way, they can farm that way, you know, and if they want to buy what somebody's got, that's, that's so-called got skull and crossbones on it, they can buy it. We're not against the system. We're not here on a soapbox to tear down what's wrong. All we're trying to do is saying, look, these are some principles that we learned and they work. And, and you got to determine for yourself, you know, how that is, but every farm is different, mm-hmm. you know, because of the degree of the, the, the soil matrix or whatever, you, the worst things in the world to work with are greenhouses. I mean, most of the greenhouses we look at, when we look at a soil sample, we say, why don't you just, if you would pick up the greenhouse and move it, it would be a lot cheaper than trying to fix what you got, you know, below your feet. Because the grain, main thing is it doesn't rain on that crop. And the, and the water washes out a lot of this stuff that's in the soil. And where does it go? It goes into the, goes in the oceans and the aquifers. 
So um, I want to stay on point here, but I, I just strayed off a little bit. What was your question? I want to I want to specifically answer that question. Uh, no, I th- I think I think you're still right on point because I kind of threw you know the complexity of this conversation and what you're doing, and I, I think it's hard to it's hard for somebody who is not in as deep as you are to wrap their minds around uh, what you're saying, or at least this is, I, I've, I've come to this through, I'm glad I'm meeting you now and not two or three years ago because I just, I, 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 I can't keep up with what you're saying, but I, I, I've learned enough now to understand that there, this is a three-dimensional model that you're speaking to. And that's where like the biology versus mineral balancing, what comes first, the chicken and the egg. And it's like, well, that's not even the question, oh. right? It's, but, 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 and, yeah. and, and we've already addressed that. What I was really asking is because you can painfully grow out an excess or you can raise the deficiencies so that an excess is balanced, right? Like that, that's kind of the solution with plants, painfully grow it out and suffer for a prolonged period of time or reduce the excess either by nullifying it or raising the good to achieve balance. Am I understanding that correctly? That that's correct. It's it's just, it's just as simple as what you just said. And and that's the way it that's what we do. We we've learned that if if you if you can't get your foss up there's something holding it down and it's usually aluminum. So you got to go after the aluminum and the foss will jump up. If you can't get your calcium up, it's usually salts. So you go after the salts, and the calcium jumps up. If you if you got too much manganese, okay, and you got low potassium, you can throw the potassium at it and push the manganese down. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's this teeter totter effect of of what you can do, and what you're looking to do is you're not you're, you're trying to stop the teeter totter from going up and down, and you just want to sit eye to eye and look at each other. That's that's where you meet the equilibrium or the water line or or the but most farmers are on the treadmill. They're on. We always, you know, I always say to them, I said, you're on a merry-go-round, but it ain't merry. But you are going around. Mm. You know, it's like I'll give you an instance. It's like a dairy. We work with a lot of dairies and animals, and um, these guys are swimming in potassium because they've been told their whole life that potassium. That, that forage loves potassium and it's it's enemy number one. So they get this high potassium in the in the forage in the soil, and then in the summer months when it dries out, it, the salts even come up worse. So the cell count in the cow jumps up. Uh, you know where the mun level rises up from from too much protein. But so what's happening is the high potassium is a major cause of of. Um, cell count, which is cell count, is your white cell count. It's just, it's just like if you have low white cell count or high cell, high white cell count, you know, it's, it throws the body out of whack. You've got to have the right white cell count. So when their cell count jumps up, it's usually because of high salts and it's usually because we isolated potassium. But the problem is this, the potassium's in the soil, it comes up in the forge, it goes into the cow, they eat it, it goes in the gutter, it falls in the pit, and they blow it back in the field. So you see what they're doing is they're just on this treadmill going around and around with the potassium. They got no calcium, and they got no calcium, you got no phosphate, and the train wreck starts. Mm. 
So it's, it's it is cyclical it's though. It is cyclical. The more oh, that I'm, yeah. the more that I'm listening to you, the more that the patterns are starting to repeat and actually make sense. And you have a lot of reinforcement of these patterns. And I guess it it's still it's still I still don't quite clearly understand how you formulate you through through apical ag sap testing you understand if you apply this much to a plant this to to, to a plant that's this tall in a field you're going to get a rise of one or two parts per million. But how do you know what your target part per million for all of the different essential elements that a plant needs to survive? How do you know what that ideal target range is? In a plant. Well, okay, so so it's in the math and it's in the case studies. You know, this is what the so-called system out there will tell you. You got to have the case studies, but I think they're working off of voodoo math. But anyway, so you have Apical running tens of thousands of tests and they're running algorithms on, you know, the conditions of the crops. So the computer's crunching all the numbers in the background but what you're doing is you're looking at the data that's coming out because you know this crop is this crop is really driving hard. I mean, we got 15 tons hanging on this crop. This crop is amazing. So now you start digging down at the data and looking why is this crop driving so hard and then why is this crop hanging one ton? And you look at the data and the remember you the math the math is always correct unless you fudge the numbers. But I'm just saying true math is never going to lead you astray. But you start changing decimal points and things like this, you'll never get to the end you'll never get to the end result. Mm-hmm. So the math on the apical side is very, very accurate. So we've just we've seen in crops, you know, take cannabis for instance, you know, or something like that. When you when you get your calcium, you know, three thousand ppm in the plant, and you got your your phosphate at fifteen hundred, you know, two to one, two calcium, one phos, and you got your potassium running at four thousand or forty five hundred, you have a serious crop going on. So so that phosphate level we've learned, the higher that phosphate goes, and we're we're just watching the yields. So it has to do with again, I keep saying case studies. It has to do, a case study is nothing but more than a keeper of the math. You're, you're, you're just, you're, you're, you're the accountant. And, and this is where, you know, the fox in the hen house, because the accountant says, no, something's wrong. Because I can see in the math something's wrong, but the fox is telling you everything's good to go. So that's how we, that's how we've learned over time. And, and, and the apical has, it doesn't have all the crops done, but it's got a majority of the crops where it has an optimum range where you should be on, the, on you know, to drive that crop. But remember, just because we, I would much rather take a, a soil with a very high biological action and a lot of worms and have very little nutrients or some imbalances, and you'll you'll drive and correct that crop way faster than you will another crop that has higher mineralization and lower biologicals. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. That goes back to your biological answer. That helps. Oh, it's oh, it's it's you want to make life easy. I mean, when you have a when you have that high biological action in the field. This is what, you know, a lot of guys we deal with, we start off with them. I had a, a, a customer call the other day and he says, you know, 
do you want good news or bad news? And I said, well, just, you know, we get it all day long. You know, good news, bad news, it doesn't. We just take it in stride. And he said, I want to give you a report. He said, it's the, it's the best tomato crop I've ever grown in my life. You know, so this guy is saying two years ago, you needed a hammer to pound a, a nail into the soil. It was literally that that hard. And this year, you know, he says, I can take my hand and go six, eight inches, 10 inches down in the soil, just push it straight down. Hmm. And he got, you know, I got worms, I got all this happening. So all we're saying is what we did is we mostly we came in with the carbon and we, we bang the carbon to the soil. And then, because it's the key to everything, you know, if you, the higher the carbon you have in the soil, the less nutrient input you need. That's a whole nother thing. Right. You know, you you got to ask yourself this question, Ryan. What were they doing 300 years ago when there no when there was no Simplot, there there was no Elber Willis, there was no tractor supply, there was no input. You were farming with manure, and it seems to me that everybody's been around. It's they've done a good job, you know, pushing seven billion people. Uh, and I know there's been wars and famines and things like that, but, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like to me that it's been that, it's been that rough, but they'll tell you, oh, where yields are bigger and this and things like that. And that's because they're plowing the amount of acreage they're plowing is, is way exceeding what they used to plow. Mm-hmm. But they'll tell you, we get more per acre out of the crop. You may get more acreage out of the crop, but it's artificially propped up. Where's your quality? Yeah. Now, what I'm going to what I'm going to do is you can't see this right here, but I want you to hear this what I'm going to do right now. This is sitting on my desk. All right? And then you don't know what this is, but I just want you to hear this what it does. If you hear that, that sounds like a rock or something I'm dropping on my desk. Would yeah. that be true? Sounds like a rock, yeah. All right? What this is, is I'll send you a picture of it. This is a grapefruit that's dehydrated on my desk, and it's about a year and a half old. And it, it's, it's about half the size of the grapefruit, but it's hard as a rock, and it did not rot. Okay, now, high-density nutrition food does not rot. It dehydrates. Low density food, low nutritional food, it'll rot. So when you bring a tomato home from the store and it sits on your kitchen counter, two days later it gets the mold spots on it and you throw it out. It's just telling you there's no nutritional value basically in it. Un- so and I we've done this with crops, you know, like tomatillas and things. I you know they sent us uh, some tomatillas from Mexico, a crop we worked on. And they did not rot. They dehydrated. And it was said it was the most amazing crop that they've ever seen. So so this is a difference in our food today. You know, I read a study once where uh, a pregnant woman in 1956 could eat one peach per day and get all her nutritional value for her and her child. And then they said, this day and age... You have to eat 56 peaches to get the same nutritional value. Mm-hmm. So if we're producing, you know, 300 bushels an acre, 220 bushels an acre of corn, the question is, what is the quality of what we're producing? And the quality is basically hollow. Jane. 
You're blowing my mind, James. I would like to uh, I would like to continue this conversation. I'm gonna let you go. It's late where you're at. I have to go pick mm-hmm. up pick up uh, okay. my son. Um, but would you be willing to do this again? Because I think this is the tip of the iceberg. Oh yeah, we're uh, our goal, Ryan, is is ears to hear and eyes to see. And and it's again, it's we don't know everything. We don't have all the answers, but we do get results, and that's the difference of what we're doing. You know, like David has said, there, there's things that we don't talk about that, that they say are unfixable and things like that. Well, that's their opinion, but we have different opinions. But that's it is what it is. But the answer is yes. I, I would I would enjoy, uh, but I, I my sincere hope, and and this is what we do. You know, we we. We have a magazine and we have a newspaper that we put out. We publish like once a year. And you'll see a lot of neat things in the magazine and that. And, and all they are is accumulation of, of one word is hope, is to give farmers hope. When they see these things, that there's hope for them that, wait a minute, there is something different out there, the way that we can farm. So our hope is this conversation can help one person or two or 20 or give them a different outlook in life to where they can have hope. Well, 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 James, you, you, you won, man. I mean, uh, I got to tell you when you and I started talking, that was, that was what came. It was, it was a bleak situation and you started talking and I thought, okay, there's a, there's a chance here. I mean, even in in this past week as David came up here and it's like, we're starting to figure things out and it's like, Hey man, there might be a a bonsai practice that I don't have to, that I don't have to use a tremendous amount of chemicals for. And that I think bonsai is such a microcosm that is, uh, you know, it's a representative of, of the more macro environment and our relationship with such. So that breakthrough for me, uh, keeps me going. So, so, uh, as far as, as far as your mission, uh, I, I feel like you've, you've gotten that done with me and I would love to continue to further the conversation because I am learning so much, uh, from your wealth of information. Well, and you're, and, uh, and we thank you and we're, we're very humble for that and we appreciate it. You know, we give, we will give God all the glory because it's not us. But, um, uh, in, in with that said, Ryan, um, if you keep going where you're going and you, and you keep understanding the excesses and that, I believe that you will, even though you, you're in the category of uh, some of the best bonsai growers in the world, I believe that you'll, you'll sit on a pinnacle one day and hopefully you can teach others, you know, what you've learned. That's the goal. This is the goal. This is the goal to do it better. And, uh, and to do it in a way that, that moves us forward, not backwards. That's the goal. Uh, I think it's got to be the goal, or things, are, or th- or things aren't going to be headed in the right direction. Uh, James, thank you. I'll be in contact and let you know how the, the next treatments go, and um, we'll just keep monitoring it and fine-tuning it until we got it figured out. All right. Don't hesitate to call, and thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, likewise, James. Appreciate it, man. We'll talk to you soon. Okay.